Welcome to Navigate, the podcast that helps you safely and securely traverse the globe. Alongside travel industry experts and global travelers, we'll gather insights and advice that help you manage any pitfalls or problems that may occur while you're away from home. Our voyage of discovery starts now. On today's episode of Navigate, I'm joined by world water ski champion Jacinta Carroll. Jacinta has remained unbeaten in world water ski jumping since 2013 and has jumped further than any woman in history. In addition to being a world champion water skier, Jacinta is a practicing physiotherapist, an Australian weightlifting champion, and is currently studying for her master's in sports medicine at the University of Queensland. Jacinta has been traveling the world and competing since she was 13 and shares with us her tips for traveling and competing at an elite level. Jacinta also tells us how she navigated a very scary trip to Russia. Jacinta Carroll, thanks for joining me. No worries. Glad to, glad to be here. So I think you know, it's important for everyone to understand where it all started. How did you become a world record holder in, in women's ski jumping? Um, yeah, so my family took up water skiing just socially. My, my parents had an old little boat and my dad's actually a sandblaster. So he was asked to go down to the local ski club and remove the slime from the boat ramp. So he did that and as a thank you, they invited us down to the club for their Christmas party and it kind of took off from there. We then joined as members and they had a coach that would come once a month and, and train any of the young juniors there. So we started doing that for a bit of fun and then that ended us into a competition. So for the uninitiated, ex- explain the, the sport. Yeah, so I guess um, water ski jumping, the easiest way to describe it is everybody has probably watched the Winter Olympics. Mm-hmm. And you see the Norwegians come down that mountain and they go down the massive ramp and they fly with their skis in a V position for as long as they can. So in the most simplest terms, I do the exact same on water. Obviously, you can't have a hill on water, so we use a boat to generate that speed. Very handy. Um, and then we use more of like a pendulum swing to give us that momentum coming into the jump ramp. So instead of just standing straight behind the boat, you'll swing yourself left to right to build up more speed and more momentum um, to, to go across and fly further across the ramp. So um, currently my best distance is 60.3 metres. So I'm in the air for about three to four seconds. So we have the same air form as what the Winter Olympic athletes do. Mm-hmm. Um, we land on water, they land on snow. I'm pretty sure both is, both is as hard as each other when you're landing on them upside down. Oh, I um, <laughs> yeah, so um, that's my main event. I do also compete in two other events. Um, but not to the same standard as what I do with my jumping. So how old were you when you first went over a jump behind a boat? I was 11. 11. I wanted to. I wanted to when I was 10. Um, but, Roger, you've seen me before. I'm not the largest person. I'm quite a short little girl. So um, they said that I was too small to go over, and I was devastated. Like, my two brothers were able to learn, and I think that's what contributed as well to me being so competitive as a kid because I was playing catch-up. I had to wait a whole other year after my brothers before I could learn, so then I wanted to just chase them down. You entered your first competition as an 11-year-old? Yes. And yes. From, from there, how did, how did it progress to – to, to traveling the world in this sport? Yeah, so I had my first international experience in that second year when I was 12. I went to New Zealand for an Australian versus New Zealand competition. And then by the age of 13, I had um, I didn't make the team, but my older brother, who was 16, made the Australian team 
for the Junior World Championships in France. Um, and I was 13 and I made the emergency position, the reverse position. So um, my parents couldn't afford to come with us. So that was my first really travel experience alone where my 16-year-old brother and me as a 13-year-old flew from Australia to, to Italy and then travelled from Italy to France to, for Matthew's right older brother to compete. Pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, and obviously there was other parents and staff that had their kids there, um, but it was just, yeah, my 16-year-old brother being in charge of me for those three weeks in Europe. So as a 13-year-old, you went to see your first um, world event. When did you get to compete in one? Um, So the next world championship, I was 15, and I went to Peru, um, and I was in the team for that event. I went in, I think I was ranked about eighth in the world at the time, um, and I was very fortunate enough to be able to play second and bring home a silver medal from that from that event there. And that was... The, the, so that was 2009. 2009. In, in between World Cups, I assume you do a lot of other travel. Yeah, yeah. So at that age, I was probably just going between Australia and New Zealand um, in those Aussie Kiwi-type challenges. But in the year of 2009, I, I was selected in the junior team in January at, at 15 to be competing in Peru and then I went to New Zealand in February and then in August I was selected in the senior team and went to Calgary in Canada and then in September I went to Mexico for the under 21 world so I was able to compete in the three different age brackets in three different um uh, countries in that year, so that was pretty pretty massive year at age at fifteen to be able to do so much in the one year. Was that then the pattern going forward? Yeah, yeah, really. Oh no, two thousand and ten. Um, I was year twelve at school, mm-hmm. so I really um, my parents believed that I um, needed a proper education, and they didn't want me to be just an athlete. So I took three weeks off to go to America in May and apart from that I attended school for the whole year so I didn't really have that big of a year in 2011 I wanted to get a really good year 12 score to get myself into university but then yeah from the norm from that was that for the next basically 2011 until 2016 I would spend six months in Australia and then six months overseas tripping between different countries competing. Yeah it's incredible and you managed to obviously fit university into all that as well. Yeah, yeah. So I did a, um undergraduate degree down in Melbourne. For the six months I was in Australia, I would do all the subjects that I needed to do practical components for. I would schedule them for that time. And then the rest of the time I would do online courses like psychology that didn't mean that I had to be in person at the university and so forth. Um, and then my travel reduced a bit when I started my physiotherapy degree because I obviously had a lot more hands-on component and needed to be at university more often. What did you find the hardest part about juggling the, the competitions and, and, and university? Um, the 3 a.m. exams that I had to sit. <laughs> um, yeah, obviously the time frames and the time zones. Like, to be honest, in the academic world, um, a lot of the times it's, you know, well, that's your exam date, that's your exam date. And universities are getting a lot better at it these days with their elite athlete programs. And, you know, UQ at the moment has been absolutely fabulous with my with me and my time off and 
and sporting commitments. But yeah, there was times where I was definitely in my pajamas doing an oral presentation to a class at 3am in the morning while I was competing the next morning at 8am. Um, I sat exams in front of lawyers in America to prove that I wasn't cheating to then submit my exam results. So that was probably that just that, that time difference. And, you know, it, these days everybody has learned in the last few months that you can do everything online and you can do Zoom and this and that. But 10 years ago when that was first starting, it was still quite new for somebody to be able to do a complete online exam. So you know, travelling the world at such a young age and obviously, you know, you, you get into a certain routine and you there's certain practices that you do as you travel to, to make things a little bit easier for you. What are some of the mm. tricks that you use when you travel? Um, and Okay, so it might sound super, super basic, but <laughs> I kind of laugh when, when everyone tells me about, oh, you know, I, I can't get used to the, the time zones and all of this. And, and my mantra has always been from day one, when the sun's up, you're up, and when the sun's down, you're down. Yep. So it didn't matter if it was, you know, nine o'clock at night and I wasn't tired. If the sun was down, I had to go to bed. All the electronics off and just lie there. Even if I didn't sleep, I had to force myself into that into that pattern. Um, and I think the earlier you can get into that routine and the, the more strict you can be on yourself in that sense, the easier it is. So I would generally get on the flight. Google the time frame of the zone that I was flying to. So say I was leaving Melbourne and I was going to um, Orlando, I would put my watch straight away on Orlando time. And when I saw that it clicked over till 9, 9 p.m. Orlando time, I would turn off my screen on my airplane TV and I would just lie there or close my eyes and put my eye mask on and just try and nap at least to start to get my body into those time frames. And I really think that that's been huge for my career. What's what's the longest you've flown and then you know had to compete straight after landing? Um, so there would have been times during my physio university degree, and it was funny you asked. Actually, uh, two days ago, I had the reminder to pop up on my Instagram saying, "Oh, this happened five years ago," <laughs> and it was I I flew for seventy six hours, like returned to spend forty eight hours in the country. Wow. So I flew from Australia to Singapore, Singapore to Moscow. The day I landed, I competed. I competed the next day and I flew home that night. So I went to university. I landed in Brisbane back on Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. And I went to class by 10 a.m. And everybody asked how my weekend was. And I was like, yeah, it was pretty good. I was in Moscow. So a lot of this travel, you know, we're going with teams. We're also doing a lot of individual travel throughout your career. What's been the the most probably the scariest event that's ever happened to you when you've travelled? Because we've all got these stories. Has it been something yeah. that stands out to you? Yeah, definitely. So, like, obviously, there's little incidents here and there, and you know, you always might be walking down the street late at night because you've landed on the plane late at night, and you need to go get some food, and it's all it's all pretty scary and nerdy. But um. There was one incident in, of course, typical uh, Moscow, Russia, which I travelled through quite a lot. And um, this was my second time there. The first time I was with a team, whereas the second time I was individual. And um, all the other competitors landed coming from America, so they'd already been transported to the to the lake to compete. And um, I was landing in the morning, and I had to compete that afternoon. 
So I walk out of customs and I've got my bags and everything and it all looked fami- pretty familiar from the last time I'd been there. And I saw a man with a sign that had my name on it and I had a picture of a water ski jumper. So I was like, okay, perfect. Like that's my bloke. I walk up and he didn't really speak much English. He said hello and basically waved for me to come with him. So I followed him out to the car park and we walk up to this little hatchback. Now, it's, you know, it might be hard to picture, but my skis are basically in a container flash bag that's at least two metres long and a foot wide. So looking at this hatchback, I'm like, okay, how are my skis going to get in this car? This is going to be interesting ride out to the lake. So the, the bloke goes to open up the boot and put his back seat down, but for some reason or another, like it was a very old car, the seat was stuck and it, and it was not moving. So he actually pulled out a knife and sliced through his seat and then pushed my water skis through the car. Wow. So that was kind of alarm bell number one, <laughs> right? And I'd been travelling for 40 hours because I had a 10-hour layover in Singapore. So I was quite tired at this point anyway. So I get in the car and it was a, the bloke driving who had the sign for my name and another bloke in the front seat. And as I go to get in the back seat, there's pornography magazines all over the seat. Hmm. So I pushed them aside and thought, okay, interesting. Not really a huge alarm bell, but another note taken. And... Um, we turn out of the, the airport and, you know, I when I was 18, I was so good with my travel. I was, like, on it. I, I swear I could have rocked up at flight centre and got employed straight away. Like, I know all about every road that I need to take. I know about all of my flights, all of my competitor flights. Like, all of the older competitors would come to me about all of our travel arrangements because I was just on top of it. So like, prepared. I just wanted to, yeah, so prepared. So, by now, I'm like, okay, I know the lake is about 10 minutes away from um, the airport and we're sitting in a lot of traffic on the highway and by now it's probably been 30 or 40 minutes and, and the guy driving is just staring in the rearview mirror going, Aussie girls, so beautiful, all Aussie girls, just beautiful. And I was like, oh, thank you, that's very nice. And he's like, no, bring me all your friends. You are so beautiful. And... um me being quite tanned, brown hair, and I was thinking, I thought they liked blondes in Russia. Like, why is he saying this? So um, he was tooting his horn for ages and no no cars were moving. So we ended up driving down the side of the grass on the highway and turning onto a gravel road. And I thought, okay, this must be a back way to the lake. And then um, we pulled across to the side of the road about five, you know, maybe 10 minutes down the road. And by this point, I'm getting quite worried. Like, we'd been driving for a long time. There was no water ski lake in sight. And I'm thinking, we should be there by now. Like, Google Maps said it was 10 minutes from the airport. I've been in this car for an hour and a half. So I started taking some photos. And at that stage, I think I had like a, you know, old Nokia phone. And, and I was sending them to my brothers that was middle of the night. I think they were out clubbing back in Geelong and saying, like, I'm quite worried. Like, I don't know where I am. I'm, I don't know what to do. So then the driver got out of the car and he went into this barn and he comes back with a bottle of vodka, typical Moscow. And he's like, Aussie girl, must drink, must drink. And I was like, oh, no, no, thanks. I'm fine. Like, I'm competing today. And he goes, no, yes, we wish you luck. Drink. And I was like, no, like, I really don't want to drink. And at this stage, like, I, I'm, I'm freaking out. Like, I'm 18. I'm on a gravel road. 
with two 40 to 45-year-old men that were massive, mind you, like large men, in parts on the side of a field trying to be forced to drink vodka. Like I, I just lost it. So I was trying to take, um, take photos and send to my brothers. And, you know, my family's not a lovey-dovey family. And, like, we never would have said I love you. And I'm pretty sure I text my brothers saying, make sure you tell mum and dad I love them because I don't know if I'm going to get out of here. Scary. And um, then the organiser called me and I answered it. And he asked where I was because he tracked my flight and understood that I'd landed two hours ago, yet I wasn't at the lake and he didn't know if I was stuck in customs. And I said, no, I'm, I'm in this car. These guys are trying to make me drink vodka. And he asked me to, to give them the phone. And I was like, no, like this is my only safety net right now. Like if I give them my phone, I've got nothing. And he promised me and assured me that I'd be safe. And for some reason I gave them my phone and, um, you could just hear them yelling at each other in, in Russian. So then the, the driver did, he gave my phone back and um, he's like, oh, the girl, you're so beautiful, but you, you must compete now. And I was like, yes, please take me to the lake, take me to the lake. And he's like, okay, we go to the lake, but if you need any help while you're here, you call me. And I was like, oh, thank you. Like, that's really nice of you. And he goes, here's my number. And he passed me his business card, which was a naked woman with, her hands tied together with a piece of rope. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I lost it. Like, I was 18, these two macho men in the front seat, porn magazines everywhere, handing me a business card that's a naked woman with her hands tied together, trying to force feed me vodka, and I've got no idea where I am. Like, honestly speaking, I thought, that's it. Like, here we are. That barn is my murder site. That's where I'm going to get taken this is it, or, you know, other things done to me. Um, and then, unbeknownst to me, we drove down the road another kilometre, turned one or two streets, and boom, we were at the lake. That whole time, I was only a couple of paddocks away from the lake, but I obviously had no awareness of where I was at the time. So that was probably the most horrifying experience. And yeah, well, it was an oh, event. Oh, yeah, and it was... Like, I didn't actually tell my parents for quite a while because I didn't want them to freak out, but I also didn't want them to think that that was the normal and I shouldn't be traveling overseas and so mm. forth. So um, the next year when that event came around, I was too scared to go. You were already a prepared traveler. Did that I was, change anything or how you prepared? Was there anything that you added to your, to your you know, preparations? Yeah. I think I try and organise to land in the country that I'm going at the same time as other competitors now. Okay. So generally speaking now, I'll make sure I land before them and I'll go, hey, let's share a hire car. I'll get there before you and I'll wait for you. Yeah, and it might have cost me more money. So at the end of the day, when it involves your, your safety um, <laughs> and potentially your life, yeah. Yeah, it's, not a, it's not a big price to pay. So the first woman to beat 60 metres? Yeah, I, I was the first woman to go 60 metres, 60.3, but two America metres in feet because they're a bit backwards still. Yep. And um, no female's ever gone 200 foot. Mm -hmm. So I've gone 198 foot wow. four times. <laughs> so the goal next year, Florida, get it all done. World record yeah. holder, distance 200 feet as well. Yes. Yeah. What's that will be the goal. Take? What's it going to take? Um, it's going to take a combination of everything. Mm -hmm. It's not just me. It's 
the right lake. It's the strongest boat you can get. It's the best boat driver in the world. And it is the perfect wind, five mile an hour, five kilometre an hour, headwind, no other. You know, one of the times where I equaled my world record, it was in pouring rain. Another time they gave me the level two driver, not the level one best driver. Um, they gave the men the level one driver and the girls a level two, you know. Yep. Then, like, there's all of these little factors and you have to get all stars aligned to be able to do what I want to do. So it's about getting some good karma in this next 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I look forward to seeing how you go in October and, and I wish you all the best in the attempt. Um, and it would be great if you could stand up there at the end of it and go, Thank you, water skiing. I'm bowing out to follow something else, but if not, I'm yeah. sure you're, you'll probably sort of keep a, a ski in the water and hoping for yeah. the foot mark. Yeah. Thank you, and, and thank you for having me on. It's, um, it's always good to obviously have a chat and, you know, teach people about my sport, but also inform some people that even when you are the most prepared person and a bit OCD about being prepared, stuff can always go wrong. Absolutely. Jacinda Carroll, thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thanks, Roger. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Navigate, the world travel protection podcast that steers you in the right direction, helping you explore the world safely. For more information on how we protect millions of global travellers each year, visit worldtravelprotection.com or follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to connect. Finally, if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more from my experts, be sure to hit subscribe or follow or please leave us a review. Until next time, keep traveling and stay safe.